Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. I am here again with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, Sucheta. As usual, so good to be with you. Looking forward again to another very stellar conversation. But before we get into it, a teacher, a student, and a game of chess that lasted for three years. Please explain. Thank you for the introduction, Todd. It's so great to be with you and to continue our conversations and have guests and kind of chisel away at this mystery of executive function. So today I have a very special guest who is going to talk about what it means to be an educator. And I thought, what story can we talk about or what can I bring to our listeners that will kind of infuse them with this curiosity of how it's done well? So I came across a story by a wonderful teacher, Paul Carrier. He's a fifth grade teacher at uh, Castroville Elementary School in California. And in 2004, he wrote a story about one of his students who was, he taught him chess in fifth grade. What's so interesting about this story is it begins with this young man at 13 who went to jail and then to prison for arson. What he did is he was shot by a gang member. And then later on that week or that day, I'm not really sure, but he burned down the house of the person who shot him. Unfortunately, there were nine people in the house that night when he started the fire. None were injured, fortunately, but he was charged at age 13 with the attempted murder and then taken to prison and eventually was sent to prison for almost till age 26. The story begins here. The unfortunate thing about this story was this is a wonderful young man. His teacher describes him to be a smart, funny, really, really enthusiastic, charismatic. And Paul Carrere uh, knew him when he was a fifth grader. So during rainy days, Paul decided to teach his kids, fifth graders, chess. So chess would be something that occupied them. It was challenging. It was interesting. Each move had its own logical place in the game. And he found that this particular young man was very interested in learning the game. So he would quickly, at the end of the school day, run home, you know, have a glass of milk, grab a burrito, and then come back so that he could play chess or his teacher would teach him chess. So went on Mr. Carrera teaching him the chess moves. And it was this same kid at age 13 got incarcerated. So you can imagine how young he was. And after being in jail for three years, a lot of inmates would play chess to entertain themselves. And in this state of despair and um, agonizing isolation and feeling that he would be forgotten, this young man wrote a first letter to his teacher in a very beautiful childlike way, he said, do you remember me? And uh, Mr. Carrera was brought to tears when he got this letter in school, which was hand-delivered, I think, by his grandmother. And Mr. Carrera's wife, the young man's grandmother, were friends at school. They worked in the same school where this young man went to school. And so eventually, Mr. Carrera, the teacher he is, he wrote back and 
he realized that this young man in prison was playing chess. And so this young man came up with this clever system where he would draw a chess board on a piece of paper, he would write a move, and he would mail a letter. Mr. Carrera would make his next move and send the letter back, and so on and so forth. As you can imagine, at this pace, with uh, going through all the scrutiny that a prisoner's letter goes through, uh, the chess game lasted over three years. The story is not so much about the chess, as you can see. It is more about these two people and what they brought to each other. This young man did not fail at learning. He did not lack desire to better himself. He just had circumstances that didn't favor him. And once he was in this place where he was so far away from being a lifelong learner, he was imprisoned. His teacher came to his rescue. And this teacher who saw everything that a teacher sees in a young mind and nurtured it, even if it meant sending letters, and sending a chess move. He did what it takes to keep that lifeline going and kept infusing hope in this child's life. And that's what inspired me to make this connection to the story that we're going to talk about today. As I bring you my guest, this is what she preaches. This is what she's all about. Today, we have Kathy Harris. She's an international consultant and a teacher, administrator, and author. We talked about her last week. She is uh, quite well known for talking about being that teacher who is all about not just teaching, but bringing a joy of learning to the students. She is known for her innovation and interactive workshops. She presents and creates this material for teachers and activities that teach them to become Mr. Carrera, in other words. You know, Dr. Kathy has worked extensively with teachers and administrators and parents throughout the United States, Canada, Europe, Qatar, Brazil, Colombia, Caribbean, her message is the same, which is look beyond the child's challenges. Look at the whole person. And I can't wait to have this second interview with her. So Todd, I bet the story of Mr. Carrera reminds you of a teacher you have had and takes me back to my kindergarten teacher who was full of life and full of zeal for learning. And she kind of infused this joy of learning in me. And I can't wait to see what Kathy has to say yeah, about all that. I'm always touched when I hear about a story with this deep emotional bond between a teacher and a student. And it's funny you ask because I just recently got to spend some time with a teacher of mine who I hadn't seen in 37 years. I was a high school teacher, an important gentleman in my life. I just was able to all these years later spend time with him. And it was like no time had passed. It was a, a really great connection. So yes, there is nothing more valuable, I don't think, than that bond between teacher and student. And boy, you and I both really enjoyed last week's conversation with Dr. Perez. And I have no doubt that today's, your conversation with her today will be just as impactful. So let's get right to it. So here is Sucheta's second conversation with Dr. Kathy Perez. Welcome back, Kathy. It's such a delight to have you. Last time we talked about learners and learning and social emotional development in children. Today, I was hoping that we will focus on the educators themselves and their ability to educate children, their personal barriers, and how can they change so they are most effective with not just one student, but all kinds of students, particularly those who generate least amount of empathy. So my first question is, what are some of the golden rules of educating children that you have learned as a teacher, parent, educator yourself, and you are even educator of educators? So, And particularly those rules that you learned at the very beginning of your career that still hold true. If we were to look at some 10 commandments for teachers, perhaps 
first and foremost, you need to praise well and praise often. And with that, I mean specific praise, not just saying good job because that just rolls right off the child. You've got to be specific exactly what they do that uh, recognize them as uh, doing something well. And I think that teachers need to be seen as a facilitator, a guide. They need to model what they want to see done in the classroom. They've got to be a challenger, an observer, and also they need to be a learner. They need to be proactive and not reactive. They've got to create a classroom that is student-centered as well as meaning-centered, a classroom that is open to discovery, that respects and encourages student voice. Again, we're getting back to student voice and student choice as critical elements in the classroom, not just giving lip service to student voice, but really a teacher who listens to what the students have to say that provides structured choice in the classroom. So it's not just a free-for-all. Again, getting back to the importance of procedures and routines, but structured choice so that they can read or write or have different kinds of uh, products for their assignment. And uh, you want to build and model an atmosphere of trust and honesty and, most important, respect so that students know the difference between what is expected of them and, again, getting back to those norms and conditions we need to work together, that that is pervasive in your learning community as a classroom. You want the classroom and to be to maintain a sense of belonging and to foster fairness and equity of voice, as well as equity of participation so that teachers are able to draw out the reluctant learners, that the teachers are able to also provide equity of voice so that the broken records or the know-it-alls aren't always on stage, taking away from sort of more of the reticent students. And in so doing, especially with as far as executive function goes, is to teach skills of self-management and inclusion in decision-making in the classroom. And of course, kindness, encouragement, that's got to be pervasive in the tapestry that weaves the classroom together. And how does a teacher do that? Through their passion, their energy, and their enthusiasm. If a teacher doesn't do what they love and love what they do, the kids are going to pick up on it right away. And you've just got to manifest your superpower and your passion. If we can go back to a few things that I would love for you to elaborate a little bit more. As you were describing these 10 ideas, I think what was so striking about them is these are good, good, good principles, golden rules to raise children with. I mean, not just teach them. This is a good way to be with other human beings. I mean, if we are like this with everyone, we can bring out the best in everyone. So it's so powerful. Exactly. And that's why it's also very important for educators to involve parents and to have parents have a voice in the classroom as well and to really see parents as collaborators. And I've always involved parents throughout my career. 
And I think that's so, critical. The students have sort of a cohesive experience. So a few questions about that. So praise well and praise often when you and be very specific. And you do warn people or rather, shouldn't we warn uh, teachers to not praise smarts, but praise effort? And what would you praise in a student who is always tardy or is slow to get started or dilly dallies or doesn't focus, needs lots of repetition of instructions? interruptive, finds it difficult to care, what aspects would you praise and how would you go about it? Got to catch them being good. In other words, you've got to find out something they are doing right. Or perhaps you could say, hey, you've got 10 correct. Maybe there were 20 problems on the page, but you could say, wow, you got 10 correct. That's two more than yesterday. Keep it up. You've got to dig a little deeper and find that glimmer of brilliance that they're manifesting, even though it may be quite covert. You've got to find something that they're doing well and be specific in your praise so that it is genuine and it is credible and it provides them a growth opportunity. But they also realize that you are recognizing what they do do well, and they are on the path of becoming even greater. Another thing that you said, which is, I think, very, very important, is build a classroom based on meaning. Can you elaborate that a little bit more on that? I think that is something finding purpose in learning, but purpose in the process or the content that is presented. Sometimes that's lost on many students who find that it's teacher's agenda and not mine, you know. How do I learn Spanish when I don't care about Spanish? Or how do I practice math when I hate math? What do you mean by meaning? I think you've got to make sure that the content is relevant and relatable. And whatever means that might take, it may mean getting beyond the textbook. And God forbid, you know, some school districts have these pacing guides that are quite prescriptive. And in fact, they even provide scripts for the teachers. You've got to be, give yourself permission to put those scripts away and those prescribed lesson plans and maybe bring in a guest speaker about how this particular role is important in society today to bring the pages of what they're learning in history and science and math to life. And what does it mean in the real world? You know, bringing in hands-on manipulatives is another way to do that so that it's not just words and it's not just print, but they can have actual concrete experiences. The use of visuals, the use of media, bringing in uh, video clips and press the pause button, have students interact with each other on how they might use this or what it means to them. And just, you know, making the pages of the textbook come to life and breathe new life into it. If you don't know what their interests or passions are, then you cannot make those important connections. So let's switch and talk about difficult children. I find that many teachers come have great desire to be effective and they have gone into the profession because they deeply care about our future generation. So their intentions are right. Their willingness to work hard is there. But then they meet a difficult child, a child who doesn't change his behavior with verbal advice, a child who 
continues to run into the same faux pas again and again, child who is slightly defiant or oblivious. And it becomes a burden on teacher and it comes in the way of her being effective or him being effective. What advice do you have for teachers when they're dealing with a child that is difficult to love? The word love is in quotes. (laughs) Teachers are not hating them. I know. (laughs) I have very vivid images in mind when you describe that particular student because I've had my share of them. And what I typically do and what I recommend doing is to talk one-on-one with that particular student because oftentimes a student is acting out in class because it's their attention-getting device. They want attention. They're desperate for attention. And by calling them out or reprimanding them in public, you're giving them exactly what they want and you're disrupting the delivery of instruction for everybody else. So that attention-getting behavior can be dissipated if you just talk with them one-on-one. Get to know them on a different level. What makes them tick? What are they interested in? What are their hobbies? What are they all about? And maybe even develop an independent contract with that particular student so that it's kind of just between you and that student, give them achievable, believable, and measurable goals that they can achieve in a day, in a week, in a unit, in a lesson, and have them be very specific so that the student can have a sense of accomplishment and that they have achieved more and that they have fulfilled discrete, specific goals. It's sort of like Maybe the class is, I equate it to an analogy of a loaf of bread. If you consider your curriculum a loaf of bread, and some kids in your class are just so eager and ready to consume the whole loaf of bread in one bite, some others are ready for a slice, and yet others, maybe only a bite, and still others, a crumb. But you give them a crumb or a bite today, and maybe next week they'll be ready for a slice, and eventually they'll get to consume that whole loaf of bread. But how can you scaffold instruction in digestible chunks so that this student can achieve more, can feel success? Because oftentimes they are also acting out because they feel inadequate and they don't understand what is being taught. And you've got to get at the root cause of the behavior that oftentimes it's not just that they're acting out to make your life miserable, but there's something else going on underneath the surface. And all these things are nothing but begin to care deeply and give everybody a chance to rise above their own personal weaknesses. You know, what is striking about this to me is executive function is self-regulation. And I often find that when dealing with children who lack the self-regulation, it can really put your own self-regulation to test. And as you mentioned earlier, respond, not react. I think those teachers who react uh, to somebody who is inefficient or impulsive or is becoming a burden to the classroom, she stops responding and she begins to react. And that's when situation becomes more and more mismanageable. I find that in your conversation that taking time to really invest 
in the whole child is really what you're recommending. And sometimes teachers feel pressed. They feel pressed for time. What advice do you have for them? Prior to the workshop on social-emotional learning that I did at the conference, I did a pre-con session on mindfulness. And I think that mindfulness, social-emotional learning, executive functioning skills are all very interrelated. However, when you integrate mindfulness in a classroom, you've got to be very immersed in mindfulness yourself. In other words, you cannot teach what you do not emulate in your own practice. So first and foremost, I recommend for teachers to be able to press the pause button in their own lives, to take some time out for themselves, to reflect, to clear their mind, to consciously press the pause button, meditate, do some conscious breathing, and then dig into their lesson plans or then think about their unit for the next day. But also to take that valuable time out in their busy classroom day to press the pause button, to do some mindfulness with the student and also participate in themselves so that they realize that they have to get away from a curriculum of coverage to a curriculum of what are they going to help them discover and uncover today. And also just so much more mindful of their reactions to the students. And as you mentioned, responding instead of reacting so that they are very much aware of thinking before they act, and how to teach those skills to the students so that their interactions with others and their relationships with others can be so much more positive and so much more proactive. So what's the most surprising thing you have learned? You have worked with many, many teachers and students across the country or the world. What has been striking for you? There's just been so many things I've learned. And that's the adventure of being an educator is that you never stop learning and that each day is a new adventure. Each day I walked into the classroom, I'd psych myself up and say, what am I going to discover today? And the joy of living, I think we've got to infuse that back into education. I deal a lot with beginning teachers, and I have uh, seminars that I've established for beginning teachers, and you just see that beaming expression and the joy that they have for the profession as they enter this new career. And then I also deal with very experienced educators, and sometimes that joy has been extinguished or sometimes even snuffed out. And it's how to reignite that passion for the profession. That's my quest. And that's why I bring my magic wand wherever I go, because the real magic in the classroom, it's not in the textbook. It's not in the new math program or the science kit. The real magic in the classroom is the passion they have for the greatest profession on earth. My quest is to reignite that brilliance again and that joy. Wonderful. And now as we come to an end, 
What are a few takeaways you would like teachers to walk away today from this podcast? Well, there's just so much. I think getting back to where we started, it being an educator is about teaching the whole child the whole day and involving the whole school. And by that, I mean the whole community, also involving the parents. I think we've got to keep in mind student voice and student choice in the classroom. We've got to start each day by having the students feel that they are indeed lovable and capable and instilling in them that can-do spirit so that they leave and also having bookends to their day starting their day with a positive opening and also being very conscious that you have time to reflect and to connect their learning at the end of the day or for secondary teachers at the end of the class period. Not being afraid to press that pause button so that they become mindful of where they are in their learning and in their lives. And I think that's the best thing that teachers can do to educate the whole child. Well, Kathy, if we have a teacher like you, I think there will be literally no child left behind. I cannot thank you for being on this podcast and really lighting up our world and being part of this wonderful force that we call education. So thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. It's been entirely my privilege and honor to chat with you today. All right. Well, Sujeda, as I suspected, your second conversation with Dr. Kathy Perros was, in fact, stunning. A lot of uh, a lot of great knowledge there. Any initial thoughts? Oh yes, <laughs> Todd. For starters, Kathy reiterated some of the basics in education or educating children uh, that are considered best practices in teaching. I feel you know. So, what are they? One is to address the need of the whole child. Second is to create a community for learners who feel safe to fail. Third, I thought is another great, great little message of uh, best practices is infuse the child with the spirit that says you can do it and you are lovable. I love uh, that, uh, you know, Dr. Paris's whole attitude towards a child's capacity is with so much gentle, caring, loving kindness. That's what I feel is the calling for every teacher. The next one is that bring lesson to life with tools and gadgets. You know, don't be a squared. You don't need to be a performer, but in a way you are, you need to be a performer. Make learning fun and relevant, useful and applicable. Every child doesn't have the wisdom to know that this math is going to be really useful when I do my taxes, you know, (laughs) or this science experiment is really going to make me a thinker when I decide whether to uh, put a particular type of sod or seeds in my backyard. You know, there's no direct relevance for a child because the child's brain is not mature, but teacher can do that for them. And the last thing I thought that came through very clearly is connect the dots between purpose and passion. I find these principles are almost like an inventory for self-check for a teacher. You know, maybe the teacher ought to ask herself or himself that, am I expressing the joy I feel when I teach? Do I know my kids and do they feel that I know them? Have I created a safe and thriving class community where Even the least skilled child feels that he has a shot at learning. Can that child feel confident that he has the room to learn from the most competent child in the classroom? The teacher can ask this question, am I prepared to teach or am I prepared to inspire? 
teacher needs to kind of introspect that why am I running low on fuel or stamina to endure my child's learning hardships? And do I need to rework my faith in teaching and learning? Kathy was talking about was really a process of rethinking the reason why teacher got into teaching. Yeah, it strikes me how many educators do not make learning fun. And look, I get that educating children, frankly, being an educator is difficult. And sometimes the subject matter is, you know, it's hard to make some, sometimes that kind of stuff fun. But uh, boy, the teachers that really have an impact do make it fun. It should be fun. So, so Dr. Perez was also talking a lot about children who misbehave. And it goes without saying, but behind every action, behind every behavior, there is more than meets the eye. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you get into business of teaching children who are by definition learning, they haven't learned at all. And part of what they haven't learned is how to behave or control their behaviors or control their emotions and learn in a group setting. So yes, you are going to deal with children who exhibit bad behavior. And what I love, loved about Kathy's message was she calls bad behaviors as an attention-getting device. And instead of focusing on that device that the child is using, focus on the motivation that made the child resort to uh, deploying that device is what I heard loud and clear. So if we unpack that uh, further, it clearly shows that the way teacher needs to take charge is from inside out. For starters, she needs to care about every child and every child's difficulties are a result of him not being engaged. So maybe she needs to take a minute to focus on what is stopping that child from being engaged or what is making that child vulnerable in the classroom. To me, it is that most aggressive one that is the most vulnerable one. He's only choosing a wrong flag to wave at the teacher. You know, instead of waving a peace flag, he's waving a war flag instead. So start with the assumption that every child is not harboring an intention to disrupt the child or to demonstrate disrespect towards the teacher. Teacher can introspect and say, what stops me from assuming that the child is not doing that intentionally? And more often, the teacher may even discover that, you know, I am becoming very sensitive and I'm becoming very tied to this notion of respect. And I, I feel I'm being disrespected. Maybe it's not me who doesn't deserve the respect or does deserve the respect, but is being disrespected. Rather, the child doesn't know how to show the respect itself. As she said, you know, get to know the child. And this is what, uh, what is time consuming, in my opinion. You know, we don't carry out stories on a banner or a poster, you know, but those stories are neatly folded notes buried deep into our wallets. And the teacher needs to be aware of that tiny little note that may be buried in deep in the wallet. And she needs to take the time to get that child to remove that tiny piece of paper that's his story. Like we heard the story in the beginning of this podcast, I talked about Paul Carrera actually knew the backstory of this young man who went to prison and what must have gone, gone into. He's written a couple of essays and they're beautiful and moving essays. I'll attach them in the resources on my website. But he talks about this child coming from a very difficult household. And for him to express his anger and throwing, starting fire in the guy who shot him is a legit response he thought he had. So imagine if this child came to the classroom and he was not misbehaving. There probably were a lot of reasons why he wouldn't misbehave. And so finally, I think the way I took Kathy's message here is that you have to ask if it is possible 
that the child is feeling inadequate and of the demands and expectations that the teacher is putting on the child? And is there a way that the teacher can scaffold the support the child needs during those difficult times? Well, it was interesting. When I was listening to you converse with Kathy, I had this idea. It feels like educating a child is like tilling the soil, like a gardener does. What do you think about that? Yes, that's a beautiful analogy, Todd. I believe that. And, you know, if we keep that analogy, what are we doing when we till the soil? We see this land, we see the potential. Tilling is preparing it so that it can take the seed, let the rain, the water interact with the seed and do its magic. We can't really see what happens to that seed until we see the plant grow. But the tilling, we have the faith that the tilling is the necessary ingredient in letting the magic happen. Similarly, I think the teachers need to, as Kathy was very clear and passionate, and I can see her do this. And I'm so glad, actually, she's the teacher of the teachers. So she talks about investing time in each child. To invest your time, you need to invest your attention. You've got to bring your attention to focus and ward off the chatter that you have going in your own head, which can be counterproductive. And this is a lot of internal work, which is nothing but the mindfulness you know, process. That means the teachers themselves have an urgent need to master their own executive function, including impulse control, capacity for self-reflection, flexibly shifting attention from details to the larger picture. And all these cognitive processes then combined with emotional mastery, where you kind of control the impulse to react with the emotions that you feel or slowing down or taking the time to deep breathing. So those are the things that go into investing into the child, which is comes back to investing into yourself. What does the teacher has to do to work on preparing himself so he can handle the burden of teaching and work with these youngsters, which is nothing but investment of time, investment of energy, and investment of that soul of yours. So in short, don't just look at teaching as getting the job of teaching done, but you have to constantly remind yourself, what was I dreaming when I thought I'll be a teacher? So connecting, staying connected with your dream of being a teacher, which is a kind of a self-work. So imagine every day when you come to the classroom, it is your yoga mat where you do the meditation. Well, you should feel joy when you teach. So so, Sujeta, any final thoughts about this idea of the joy of teaching? Yes, and you said it. You know, it's that what we heard Kathy say. In its essence, it's taking the joy ride and infusing the joy along the way. This is my favorite takeaway from Kathy's conversation with Kathy. She said, teaching is an adventure. Infuse the joy of living into teaching. What a beautiful message. I simply love that mantra because being an educator is not a simple task. You're responsible not only for shaping minds and creating next generation of citizens, but you're also setting them on a path of self-love and love of life. So having that one teacher with great zeal, enthusiasm, and love for what he or she does can truly uplift the student to do more than his fair share of doing the work, so to speak. But in fact, along the way, he's picking up this joy of learning from the teacher. So it's not the content uh, that's actually inspiring, but it's the people and their journey and the way they unravel the art of finding meaning, that is in true inspiration. Our message to each and every one of us, whether you are in the profession of teaching, but we are responsible for teaching things to people, teaching things to children. So what should we take away from here is be that true inspiration and exude inspiration in every act. 
my final thought about this is that this talk made me think that what does it mean to do your job well? To do the job well, you need knowledge, passion, influence, and deep commitment. To become an extraordinary person who wants more for himself or herself needs to be taught by a person who has shown how to be that extraordinary person. So in fact, the teacher is truly called to become an inspirational coach. And what I want to really kind of think about as a community that we don't need lots of fancy gadgets, lesson plans and tools and money, but that true inspiration comes by overcoming internal hurdles that a self faces, you know, is to elevate oneself. And so let your inner joy be reflected in your teaching and reflected on the faces of those who are learning from you. Wow, Sujata, what a powerful close. Uh, Yeah, the lesson for me is that teaching and learning should be fun, joyful, and an adventure. Great stuff. All right, that's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our hosts, Sujata Kamath, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for tuning in and listening. And we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal. 